Hi, this is Sergeant Betsy Brantner-Smith with the National Police Association, and this is the NPA Report. I have a terrific guest with me today. He is, uh, he's a deputy sheriff. He's now retired, um, but he does so much more. He is, uh, he blogs. Um, he's got some stuff going on in entertainment. We're going to talk about that. And uh, he's just a fascinating guy that was the subject of a, a recent Officer Down Memorial podcast that uh, Sheriff Scott Rose does. He's also a friend of the program. Uh, Deputy Dustin Riker, welcome to the program. Yeah, good morning or afternoon, I guess it is. And I want to start with a shooting that you were involved in uh, as a deputy, you and a, and a uh, rookie uh, who had been on the job, uh, she'd been on the job for a while, but only her second day in solo patrol. You guys went to a loud music hall. Every cop on the planet has been to hundreds of those. And, uh, and it, that's usually a nothing call that lasts five minutes and you ask people to turn the music down. Uh, but yours turned out very differently, didn't it? Yeah, yeah, very, very differently. Yeah, we got, uh, we got called, you know, at the time we didn't have a large patrol division. So um, Andover had two contract cars on and we were working in place of a couple other officers and uh, just being a couple days on our own, Sam got that call and I thought, eh, you know, it's the one block in this community that would be the one to give her a hard time. And so I thought it's Thursday night, but I was close by. So I swung by and we were both thinking it would just be a quick in and out. And I would just be kind of there in case somebody wanted to give a hard time. At least they saw a second officer there. So Right, because she had, uh, Sam had, your partner had only been, uh, she'd been a community service officer and then she became a police officer. But this was only her second night in solo patrol. And so she even said herself that, you know, she knew that she had, you know, you there and some of the other deputies in case she had questions or anything. But it was primarily her call, right? Yeah, it was assigned to her um, loud music. Again, that, that's normally when I would just say it, I'd advise and, and go alone. But yeah, she was a CSO with us for a couple of years. And uh, she's a friend of mine. And then when uh, we were working that night, we were supposed to go. She wanted to learn about meth houses. And since we were originally were Rover cars, we were going to go just teach her. I, I love anybody who wants to ch chase dope. So that was the goal. And instead, we were we were dealing with uh, barking dogs and loud music calls, which two days on our own. But, you know, our FTO program is about three months. And in that time, she worked a lot of her time with me and I wasn't the FTO. I would just be at the same calls as her. And I threw every curveball I could at her. And she probably lost a lot of sleep over it at nights, but she did a great job. And so two days on her own, she was actually off FTO early. And uh, it just was just the one neighborhood was the reason why I even showed up. So you guys go to this loud music call in a duplex area. And it was a block in your patrol area that, that had caused some problems in the past. And, uh, and you guys go, and my favorite part of this whole story is the music that you heard when you go up to the house that's playing the loud music. And every loud music call I've ever been to, it's, you know, it's Marilyn Manson or, or you know, some other kind of metal or something. And, uh, but you guys walk up and it's the Bee Gees. It was, you know, she got there right before me. So she was talking to the complainant across the driveway and as she meets me at the edge of the driveway, I was like, hey, you hear that? Because I'm kind of a jokester. And I was like, that's the Bee Gees. And I started doing a little disco dance. And then she started doing the disco dance uh, as well. 
you know, although it's not a joking ending here, I always joke that apparently the guy didn't like my dance moves. I don't know. <laughs> well, so you go to try and make contact with this guy who's playing his BGs too loud. And, uh, um, you know, and, and things, things got pretty intense, pretty fast. And they talk about it. Yeah. It, it, it changed really, really fast. It's just interesting. She went to the door. She's just knocking. I'm just, honestly, I know we should be more tactical, but it's a loud music call on a Thursday with no cars in the driveway, no party. And I'm just kind of looking in the window like, yeah, there's a light on in the back. I see a shadow. Okay. Somebody's coming. Oh, he went back in the kitchen. Oh, he's got, and then that's when he came back, he had the gun in his hand and, and we of course retreated to, there was no safe spot. The trees were about this big in the yard. The cars were all too far away. It's a duplex, so I don't have a corner of the house. It was a unique dynamic situation that I'm not sure I've ever met in training. Well, so here you are now this, you're knocking on this guy's door and he comes, walks toward it with a gun. And I think some people might say, well, he's just protecting his house, right? Absolutely. You know, I don't, I can't speak for Sam overall, but my mind frame being experienced is this isn't going to happen. You know, we get our guns out and I'm standing next to her. And all I kept thinking is if he starts shooting at us, we're both going to get hit. And so it was, it was a tough decision to make because I knew that that was the most tactical spot we had. And so I just took one big step away from her. And by that time it was like, uh Oh, it's just too late. I'm out in the open. So we're going to have to address this. But even as I fanned over, there's no way. It's a full moonlit night. We're yelling police, sheriff's office. It's just, it was a fluke. I mean, everybody has the right to have a firearm, especially in their house. It's the point where that gun was raised and brought outside the door that obviously it was taken to the next level. And we had to make some, I had to make some very serious decisions. So the suspect comes to the door and opens the door and raises that pistol right up to your eye level, doesn't he? Yeah, it started out at my chest. And um, quite frankly, that was the point where, you know, the decision was made, I'm going to pull the trigger. And by the time, because he was in an elevated position, by the time that I had gotten my gun to his chest and pulling that trigger, because um, of course, everybody thinks we shoot our arms or legs, center mass, got to stop that threat as soon as possible. He had already had it pointed between my eyes. And it was when I shot, I actually remember my head because that gun looked so big to me that it, my head popped backwards as I shot. I pulled so twice, he, but it only went off once. It was weird. Right. So so you fire twice, which, you know, a lot of times that's what we're trying to do, but you fired so fast that your pistol didn't have time to recycle. And that's uh, our theory. Yeah. I, we, I talked to a crime lab afterwards. I said, I know you can't tell me anything. I said, I just need to know if my gun jammed. It's driving me crazy. And there was no stovepipes, no misfires. So the only thing is, I must not have recharged uh, the trigger. Well, it's a really intense situation. You know, yeah. you're shooting, you're being shot at. Um, so you shoot him, but at the same time, he shoots you, right? Kind of. So when he, when I shot him, I knew I hit him. Um, and so from that point, all I could see was cars to the right. His car was to the right in the driveway. And I just wanted to get to that car. And as I passed by that picture wing window with my flashlight. Turns out that he's a skilled gunsman himself. And even though it was a lethal round, he returned fire, double tapping me, which is what I was trying to do to him. And he hit me in the arm and then the pelvic region, which dropped me. Right. So you, you are able to retreat, but you know, you're, you're badly wounded. He turns out to be was mortally wounded. Although he's able to call 911 and talk to your dispatchers 
um, and say that he has been shot. So for a little while, you guys had an open 911 line. Um, and then as, as happens, and, and your jurisdiction is a pretty small, you were in a small area, right? You're a county deputy and uh, um, the city that you were in is not very big, right? So the city itself is not that big, uh, but the county I think is the third largest county. So we're a huge county, um, but in this case, we were just in one of our suburban cities. I, the one that's closest to the patrol station, but if anybody knows the dynamics of police, especially sheriff's departments, there's almost never anybody at the patrol station because they're always so far out in the county. Right, right. So Sam calls in, officer down, shots fired, and all of a sudden, uh, everyone is there, right? Everyone from multiple jurisdictions, they're able to uh, rescue you, get you to the hospital, um, and ultimately resolve this case. Your case went to the grand jury, and uh, of course, you were found to have not done anything wrong. You were just doing your job, and uh, Sam goes back to work, and um, you go home to recover, you're married, and uh, um, you ultimately come back to work at first on light duty. And, uh, and you know, when I was, when I heard your story, I'm thinking, oh, great, he's come back to work light duty, probably just welcomed, uh, heroes welcome with open arms. This is going to be a great ending to the story. That's not exactly what happened, is it? No, now, you know, before I point that out too, I do want to point out that that was a previous administration because the sheriff we have now actually phenomenal sheriff and very involved throughout the country in different sheriff's associations. But the particular sheriff administration at the time, yeah, I, he had said at a sergeant's meeting, he didn't think the guy was going to shoot me. And, and he and I butted heads over that because you point, point a gun at a cop's face, it's kind of, you have a job to shoot him. And uh, but yeah, it was a really tough battle, and it's such a long story that's really hard to tell. But to recap it, as I go back eventually, because what does every cop want to do when they're hurt? They want to get back to that car, and I just wanted to get back to the road. And I hit hurdles at every single stage, and grand jury cleared me, and that was a pretty scary process. Uh, we have a uh, two different reviews: one's uh, the legal review internally, the other one's the policy review, and they just kept postponing and postponing and I was like captain I don't know why but I need to hear that you guys are clearing me the public needs to hear that and uh, eventually I had a little blow up so they sent me to the main office maybe a big blow up I'm a vocal person and uh, ultimately they just kept moving me now I was shutting up because my my lawyer's like zip your lip which is not easy for me and the more I shut up, the more people came up with their own stories. And I just kept getting called into the uh, uh, undersheriff's office to get scolded for things I wasn't doing. And uh, it was it was a unique ride that I eventually got put on back on the uh, back on a medical leave after they put me down into the basement, into the crime lab, hidden away. Eventually, uh, uh, I started really pushing back on them, and then they sent me back home on a medical leave. And the, one of the things I want to point out is that, you know, when, when the public sees a police officer involved shooting, you know, they think that, that, okay, there might be a week or two where the media is talking about it. And then there is that grand jury process. And of course you had to heal from your, your injuries, which were pretty severe. And, uh, and, and then you go back to work and life is normal, you know, like it is on TV. And that's not necessarily what happens. And there is something that happens in some organizations where a cop who's involved in, a, in an officer involved shooting, even a righteous one, 
is all of a sudden seen differently. And, and it can really be absolutely life-changing, right? Not just um, because you were forced to take a human life, but all the reaction, um, you know, not only from your administration, but sometimes from your coworkers. You know, I, people, I don't think a lot of people know this, but a police department has about as many rumors as your average high school. And uh, lots of rumors, the rumor mill was, was, you know, causing you problems as well. And you ultimately discovered that you had some post-traumatic stress, didn't you? I did. I did. You know, to talk about that, people don't realize cops are really hard on themselves, on each other. I mean, like really hard on each other. My guys and gals in my department were really good to me. Administratively, not so much. Sam got a lot of pressure from admin that I didn't know about and the partners, which I back what she did 100% that night. But yeah, I eventually, uh, uh, I failed a psych, a fitness for duty evaluation. Um, if, uh, if you want to know more, I mean, ultimately I wrote every single detail in the book to be open and honest so I could heal, but, um, it was, it was a pretty scary and, and I hate to sound like a conspiracy theorist, but I kept thinking to myself, are they messing with me on purpose? This can't be true. And, uh, they were, and I couldn't believe that I came to that conclusion. And actually Sam in this recording confirmed more than I even knew. Uh, but yeah, it was, it was rough. And ultimately I was diagnosed with histrionics and narcissism. I accepted it for about five minutes and then called my lawyer and the fight was on and we went to a specialist and turns out cops take the psych test differently. Once they've been an experienced cop, once they've been in tra trauma, traumatic situations. So it's uh, it was just a complete flub and I got cleared by him and then the fight was on, but long story short, it was just burning me out. I was going to be that crabby old cop that I didn't want to be. And I knew I was struggling with the PTSD and I knew my arm still hurt. So I just asked my lawyer if we could maybe medical out. And so that's what you did. You took a medical retirement, right? Yeah, for my arm. I refused at that time. There still is. But at that time, there was a big stigma around PTSD or post-traumatic stress or post-traumatic stress syndrome, whatever you want to call it. Huge stigma at the time. And I wanted to do everything I could not to make it about that. As a matter of fact, when we agreed to retire, he wanted me to sign off that he didn't have to uh, uh, grant a carry permit to carry. <laughs> I was like, it's too late. I already saw it coming. We already got it from you. So now when, and let's talk about police and post-traumatic stress for a minute, because that it, I think the public is starting to really um, learn more about that in the aftermath of the George Floyd riots, you know, not just in Minnesota where you are, yeah. um, but uh, all around the nation, but specifically in Minnesota, one of the things we're seeing with the Minneapolis Police Department is uh, well over 100 post-traumatic stress-related retirements that are being processed through uh, human resources right now uh, in the Minneapolis Police Department. And then there's a bunch in Chicago, a bunch in New York, you know, because uh, we are recognizing now in law enforcement, as we are in the military, that post-traumatic stress is not this freaky thing that makes you crazy, but it's, it's a real issue that needs to be dealt with, right? That's what you learn. Yeah, you know, as they're figuring out a variety of terms, but it builds up, you know, cumulative PTSD, which I think is the one that most cops are dealing with. I know everybody around me felt like, oh, the shooting must have given you. And I'm it did. It did. But I had less trauma surviving or revolving around that than I did 
in the actual handling. And I, and I went to a uh, therapist that gave me EMDR, eye movement, rapid desensitization. And it's just like a DUI test. And she's like, just put a picture in your mind and tell me when it changes. And it would change rapidly. And all of these weird things in my life and all these calls. And she explained it like it's downloading from your short-term memory to your long-term. And it was just exhausting. You can't drive home. And it was then that I really realized, as I, I talked about on the podcast, if you take a soda pop can, and that's what it is, all your life's traumas, bad relationships, abusive scenarios, problems with supervisors, conflicts with anybody, dead bodies, you know, dead children, I think, eats all of us alive. And you take all those, and it's just in this pop can shaken up, and, and uh, the shooting is kind of like the, the opening of the can. It just explodes everywhere. And I think that's the best relation I can try to paint uh, visibly for people. And, and it's important to get it treated because that's where we're dealing with those suicides for both law enforcement or military. And, and I, I definitely could go without hearing about another suicide ever again. But since this is my passionate world, and I could definitely go without losing another officer to suicide. Well, and as we talk about all the time, we die, we law enforcement officers die about two and a half times by our own hand as we do by felonious assaults. I mean, it, it, it gets it gets worse every year. And, uh, and it's something that, that we really need to talk about. And EMDR, and it, it, for uh, people who aren't familiar with that, um, just do a quick Google search. And, and it is, it's not just for cops and military, anybody who's experienced trauma, um, a therapist who is skilled at EMDR, it, it, it can be enormously helpful for people who've experienced trauma. So I know it, it helped you. When did you decide to write the book and what was that process like? You know, I felt bad writing it in one sense, but I got uh, hired to do a, a speaking event and I knew I shouldn't have taken it because it was too long and I wasn't ready. I'm a perfectionist, and uh, but I took it because I needed the money. And uh, when I did it, it was hard. It was very hard for me and, and I got through it. Sam came, so it was even harder knowing she was in the audience. It's the first time we'd seen each other in a long time. And after that, I started talking to a couple of friends and they said, well, maybe you just need to write it down and get it organized. And as I did that, I started to go, this looks like a book. And then I held on to it for a couple of years and I kept rewriting it, but I felt bad. And finally, I realized that that's what was helping me heal. And uh, I didn't expect it, but a lot of officers who were really struggling that read it had dealt a lot with administrative issues because it really dives a lot into that. And they said it really helped them move through knowing that there's there's life beyond the badge, that there's life beyond the fight with the administration. And, and I felt really good every time I hear something like that. That wasn't my intent. My intent was to tell my story, but apparently by doing that, it's helped some. So I, I, I'm happy as could be about that. Well, and one of the things, again, we talk about a good, a good friend of ours, Dr. Kevin Gilmartin, he wrote Emotional Survival for Law Enforcement. He speaks all over the world. And that's one of the things he talks about is is we always think it's those officer-involved shootings or other traumas, but administrative stress, stress from inside the police department can often be worse or, or be that breaking point um, to what, you know, uh, to all the other things that affect us. Isn't that right? It's so oh, difficult. Absolutely. I mean, I just, story after story that I hear after I speak, usually I get emails or just people pulling me aside after people read the book, they reach out and they, they and it's hard for me because I'm not a therapist, so I can't really give any advice and I don't. I often just listen and just say, yeah, I understand. Yeah, that's like, as far as I know, that's normal because 
imagine any relationship we have when somebody dominates you so unreasonably no matter what we all break down well the same thing is often happening in some of these police related scenarios if if something happens that goes against generally what i see is the political or personal aspirations of either that supervisor or administration then the thunder comes down and you become the pawn and a lot of cops aren't wired that way right absolutely so we only have about a minute left what are your uh hopes and what do you see for the future of law enforcement now uh i think and know we're in trouble and we're in trouble because the drop of applicants you know there was I applied for state patrol once and there was one spot for 300 of us and now they're nearly begging for applicants so and i think as we lose people on the ptsd train we're going to be in more trouble and now that people with common sense aren't joining this profession unfortunately uh, it's leaving lower levels of the pool and i think we're going to be in trouble for five to ten years minimum which scares me as now a citizen right and then hopefully we'll cycle out of it right hope you know. so by the time yeah. I'm old and frail, I hopefully we finally cycle back so we can feel safe again. Dustin, where can people find you, find the book, find your website? How can they bring you in to speak? Uh, I would love to speak, talk, get you a book, anything else. Uh, 10-88officerdown.com is the, is the website that we designed for it. And if you forget the dash, it's okay. 1088officerdown.com will get you there too. So um, definitely check it out. I, I'm here hopefully just to help bring any message we can because uh, there's life beyond the badge and cops aren't bad. Dustin, thank you so much for spending time with us today. And if you would like more information about the National Police Association, visit us at nationalpolice.org. Put the gun down! Last year, Law enforcement officers were involved in hundreds of thousands of use of force incidents. A use of force incident is when an officer must use nonverbal tactics to gain control of a dangerous situation. Put the knife on the ground. In many cases, officers have no choice but to use force when a suspect doesn't comply with a lawful order. Use of force is always ugly. No one likes it, especially police officers. Together, we can help de-escalate these dangerous encounters. Help police officers by complying with their lawful orders. Don't attack, attempt to disarm, or flee from an officer. Use of force is an officer's last option. Most incidents can be avoided by not resisting arrest. If you feel you've been wrongfully detained by a police officer, then seek a legal solution after the encounter has been resolved. Let's keep everyone safe. Comply now and complain later.